They shall expel demons. What you need to know about demons, your invisible enemies, by Derek Prince. Part 1 Fundamentals. Chapter 3 The Pattern and Mission of Jesus. When I was confronted publicly by the open defiance, of a demon in a Sunday morning worship service, as I explained in chapter 1, I was impelled to study the New Testament accounts of how Jesus dealt with such things. He's the one and only foundation and pattern for all Christian ministry. In this chapter, therefore, I will examine in some detail how Jesus himself dealt with demons. One of the earliest scenes in his public ministry in a synagogue in Capernaum is described vividly in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And then the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice. He came out of him. The reaction of the people is described in verses 27 and 28. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new doctrine with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. In verse 23, When the New King James Version says, with an unclean spirit, the Greek actually says, in an unclean spirit. Perhaps the nearest English equivalent would be under the influence of an unclean spirit. It is noteworthy that the New International Version translates this phrase, possessed by an unclean spirit. This exemplifies how translations can mislead us regarding the activity of evil spirits or demons. Nothing in the original Greek justifies the use of the word possessed with its suggestion of ownership. This translation is an accommodation to traditional religious terminology that obscures the meaning of the original text. 
Jesus had been preaching in Galilee, quote, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, end quote. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Now he had to demonstrate the superiority of his kingdom over the kingdom of Satan. There are six important points to notice. First, Jesus dealt with the demon, not with the man. The demon spoke out of the man, and Jesus spoke to the demon. Literally translated, when Jesus said, what Jesus said to the demon was, Be muzzled. Second, Jesus expelled the demon from the man, not the man from the synagogue. Third, Jesus was in no way embarrassed by the interruption or disturbance. Dealing with the demon was part of his total ministry. Fourth, the demon spoke in both singular and plural forms. Quote, Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Verse 24. This response is characteristic of a demon speaking for itself and on behalf of others. The demon in the main man in Kadara used the same form of speech. My name is Legion, for we are many. Mark chapter 5 verse 9. Fifth. It is reasonable to assume that the man was a regular member of the synagogue, but apparently no one knew he needed deliverance from a demon. Perhaps even the man himself did not know. The anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus forced the demon out into the open. Sixth. It was this dramatic confrontation with a demon in the synagogue that launched Jesus into his public ministry. He came known to his fellow Jews first and foremost as the man with unique authority over demons. How Jesus Dealt with Demons On the evening of the same day, when the people's movements were no longer restricted by the Sabbath regulations, we might say that Jesus held his first, quote, healing service, end quote. It goes as follows. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed that is to say, demonized. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. The same events are described in Luke 
chapter 4, verses 40 through 41. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. For a clear picture of how Jesus dealt with demons, we need to combine the accounts of Mark and Luke. Mark says, quote, He did not allow the demons to speak, end quote. But Luke says, And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God, end quote. As in the incident in the synagogue, the demons declared their recognition of Jesus publicly as the Holy One of God or the Son of God, but after he allowed them to say nothing more. It is noteworthy that people came to Jesus healing, seeking healing for their sickness, but many of them had demons cast out of them. Apparently, the people did not realize that some of their sicknesses were caused by demons. One remarkable characteristic of Jesus' ministry from beginning to end is that he never made a hard and fast decision between people, the healing of people's sickness and delivering them from demons. The same applies to his ongoing ministry of preaching as described in Mark chapter 1 verse 39. And he was preaching in their synagogue throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Expelling demons was a normal part of Jesus' ministry as preaching. Delivering people from demons was both the confirmation and the practical application of the message he was preaching, which was, quote, the kingdom of God is at hand, end quote. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. To what kind of people, we might ask, was Jesus ministering in this way? primarily observant Jews who met every Sabbath in the synagogue and spent the rest of the week caring for their families, tending their fields, fishing the sea, and minding their shops. The people who received help from Jesus were mainly normal, respectable religious people. Yet they were demonized. A demon had gained access to some area or areas of their personalities, and as a result, they themselves were not in full control. We need to remember that the moral and ethical code of Jewish people in Jesus' time was based on the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. This meant that most of them 
were probably living better lives than the majority of people in our contemporary Western society. Undoubtedly, there are many similar people to be found in the Christian community today. Good, respectable, religious people who attend church and use all the right religious language, yet all like the observant Jews of Jesus' day. Some areas in their personality had been invaded by demons, and as a result, they are not in full control. Surely they need deliverance just as much as the people to whom Jesus ministered. In Luke 13:32, Jesus made it clear that his practical ministry to the sick and demonized was to continue unchanged to the end. Quote, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Quote, Today, tomorrow, and the third day, end quote, is a Hebraism that could be paraphrased from now on until the job is finished. The practical ministry of Jesus began, continued, and concluded with two activities, healing the sick and expelling demons. The way he began was the right way, and he never needed to improve on it. Further, when the time came for Jesus to commission and send out disciples, he instructed them to continue to exactly do the same pattern of ministry that he himself had demonstrated. To the first twelve apostles, he imparted a twofold authority first, to expel demons, and second, to heal every kind of sickness and disease. See Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Then he gave them explicit instructions as to how to use this authority. Quote, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. End quote. Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 through 8. Mark gives a brief description of how the disciples carried out their task. Quote, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Mark 6, verse 13. Casting out demons then was not an optional, quote, extra, end quote. Later, Jesus sent out 70 more disciples in pairs to prepare the way before him in every place he intended to go. We do not have a detailed account of his instructions, but clearly 
It included casting out demons. For on the disciples' return, they reported with joy, quote, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. End quote. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. After his death and resurrection, Jesus again commissioned his disciples, but he now extended their ministry to the whole world. The message of those who went forth in faith and obedience, he promised, would be arrested by five supernatural signs. The first two were these. Quote, in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues. End quote. Mark 16, verse 17. Since the beginning of the 20th century, a great deal has been preached, taught, and written about the second sign, speaking with new tongues. But the sign Jesus put first, casting out demons, has not received the same positive attention. It is sad that contemporary Western church has been unwilling to come to grips with the issue of demons. A further account of Jesus' final commission to his disciples is given in Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20. Quote, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. End quote. This commission was simple, simple and practical to make disciples and then to teach them to obey all that Jesus had commanded the first disciples. Then these new disciples would in turn make further disciples and teach them all that Jesus had taught. So it would go from generation to another, quote, even to the end of the age, end quote. Jesus started his disciples off with the right, quote, program, end quote, and never made any provision for it to be changed. Unfortunately, through the centuries, the church has made many unauthorized changes, none of them for the better. The Pattern of the New Testament Evangelism The New Testament provides one clear example of a disciple who patterned himself on the ministry of Jesus. That was Philip. He's the only person in the New Testament specifically described as an evangelist. See Acts chapter 21, verse 8. And his ministry, described in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and 
verses 26 through 40, is the pattern for New Testament evangelism. Philip's message was refreshingly simple. In Samaria, it was Christ. To the Ethiopian eunuch, it was Jesus. Philip need no organizing committee, no trained choir, no rented auditorium. The crowds gathered to hear him for only one reason, the dramatic demonstration of God's supernatural power. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying aloud with a voice, came out of many who were possessed, that is to say, demonized, and many who were paralyzed and lamed were healed. Acts chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. This is New Testament evangelism. The gospel is preached and the multitudes hear. They see the miracles and casting out of demons and they believe. They are baptized. They believe the church is established. A central element is the expelling of demons, which is often accompanied by noisy and disorderly manifestations. Other features of evangelism vary, but this element is central to evangelism as practiced in the New Testament, first by Jesus, then by his disciples. The pattern of evangelism was not confined to the disciples who had been eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. It was conspicuous in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. At one point, in fact, Paul's success in dealing with demons had an impact on the entire city of Ephesus. God did not correction. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed that is to say, demonized. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, quote, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? End quote. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in higher honor. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 17, the New International Version. Since these sons of Siva were deliberately imitating Paul, they provide us with a shadow from which we can form a picture of how Paul dealt with demons. Apparently, he spoke directly to them and commanded them in the name of Jesus to come out of their victims. In other words, Paul followed the pattern of Jesus himself. The ignominious failure of the sons of Siva is also clear proof that success in casting out demons does not depend merely on using the right formula. The person using the formula must be a sincere and yielded channel for the supernatural person of the Holy Spirit. These events in Ephesus provide a further New Testament example of how the ministry of deliverance can affect an entire community. The spectacle of the sons of Siva fleeing in disarray before a demonized man had an impact on the whole city of Ephesus, but especially on the Christians living there. It served to draw a clear dividing line between the disciples of Jesus and the believers. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, NIV. Up to that time, many of these believers had apparently been trying to live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of Satan. They had made a profession of faith in Christ, but had retained in their possession scrolls containing the secret formulas they had used in their occult practices. Apparently, these scrolls were very valuable, which may have been one reason the Christians were reluctant to part with them. But once their eyes were open to the real spiritual issues, they were willing to watch their scrolls burn. A drachma was one day's wage. If we were to calculate the value of these scrolls in our own currency, basing it on $40 a day, the approximate minimum wage in the U.S., the equivalent would be more than $2 million. Obviously, there is money to be made in the occult. The result of this dramatic confrontation between the two kingdoms 
is summed up in a closing verse. Quote, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Acts chapter 19 verse 20 If evangelism is seldom conducted with these results in the Western world, we need to ask, who has changed? Is it Jesus or the demons or the church? This is the end of chapter 3.